Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you to our TMC seminar today and to introduce Dr. Jenny Weissblock. Uh, first of all, I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative and want to take a minute just to say that we're, well, we're glad that you're here. And if any of you or anyone that you know uh, has an interest in participating more broadly in our programs of study, we would invite you to contact us about that and to be in conversation with us. Uh, we have a, a residential program of study where uh, students and practitioners uh, with vocations to healthcare can come and study at Duke Divinity School for one to two years uh, in community uh, coursework, spiritual formation, and community engagement. We also have a hybrid program where uh, clinicians across the country and those in healthcare can participate in our work by being in residence at Duke for one week in the fall and one week in the spring with online coursework the rest of the time. And we would uh, love to be in conversation with you about that. Uh, it's my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Jenny Weissblock. Dr. Jenny Weissblock, OP, is a Dominican laywoman and practical theologian. She served as chief advisor to Dr. Paul Farmer since 2009 and was his chief of staff in his role as United Nations Deputy Special Envoy under President Bill Clinton. Uh, in Dr. Uh, Dr. Block's role with Dr. Farmer, she, pro she provides strategic guidance in policy analysis and development, humanitarian disaster management, disability rights, foreign aid effectiveness, poverty reduction, and global health equity. And she served in that context as a liaison with international NGOs those foundations and philanthropists. Dr. Block has an MBA, an MA in theology, and a doctorate of ministry from Barry University. She's the author of Copious Hosting, a Theology of Access for People with Disabilities that's widely considered to be a seminal text in the development of a theology of disability. She's lectured widely on a variety of topics, including disability, spirituality, lay formation, Christian hospitality, social justice, and Dominican life. Dr. Block lives in Miami and New York. She has three fine children and four adorable grandchildren. Uh, Dr. Block's visit with us, and she is uh, with us on campus at Duke right now, which has been such a privilege, uh, was scheduled long before the very untimely death of Dr. Paul Farmer uh, last week. And although Dr. Block is currently uh, grieving her friend and close colleague, uh, she uh, agreed to be with us on campus, and it's been such a joy to speak with her about her own work and also about the work and life of Dr. Farmer, and we've had some good uh, times to honor him and to remember that uh, in her visit here. And we're excited that she's now presenting with us in today's TMC seminar on what I learned about accompaniment from Paul Farmer. Dr. Block, we're so glad that you're here with us. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Kinghorn, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I always wish my parents were here to hear it. And to everybody at Duke for your very warm uh, welcome. I have a confession to make. To be honest, I thought about not coming on this long planned trip. 
As many of you know, Paul Farmer's sudden and untimely death in Africa just 10 days ago have made these days since then very emotional, demanding, and exhausting. All of us and many people around the world are heartbroken. And I knew if I said it was too much to come at this time, this decision would be met with understanding. But then I asked myself, WWPD, what would Paul do? And the answer came quickly. I could just hear him say to me, why would you consider uh, canceling? Of course you should go. You said you were coming and you don't wanna let them down. He was very happy I was involved in the theology, medicine and culture program at Duke, his alma mater, and he encouraged me to participate in this program as well as to make this trip. He had actually mentioned hoping to come with me as a surprise. And I can tell you he would love this program and definitely would have tried to figure out how to insert himself in some way. Then I thought of the many, many times I saw him push himself, despite being overextended and tired, to keep his obligations, especially when people were looking forward to seeing him. So here I am trying to practice what Paul Farmer and I referred to as the ministry of showing up. I had a good draft of this program prepared to present, but given the recent events, I hope it's okay I changed the topic of this paper from side by side towards the spirituality of accompaniment to what I learned about accompaniment from Paul Farmer. Obviously, there's no way I can do justice to this topic in only 45 minutes with only a day or two of preparation, but I will do my best among the many things that Paul taught me, and he had way more confidence in me than I have in myself, was not to be afraid to fail. I met Paul Farmer in 2005, and shortly after we met, he asked if I would be his spiritual director, or as he liked to joke, his interior decorator. Five years later in 2010, Paul was asked to join the Obama administration, and he asked me if I would oversee the preparation for his Senate confirmation hearing. Long story short, it was supposed to be a three-month assignment, but after Paul decided not to go with the Obama administration, he was soon appointed President Clinton's deputy in the United Nations Office of the Special Envoy to Haiti, and he asked if I would come along and serve as his chief of staff in his UN office. These were challenging times for soon after our office was established, the 2010 earthquake devastated Haiti. When our UN office sunset, I was transitioned to serving as Paul's chief advisor with oversight for his international policy work, his writing and publications, and a myriad of other tasks, large and small. In 2018, I was honored to write Paul Farmer, Servant to the Poor, in Liturgical Press's People of God series, where he takes his place amongst other noted Catholics in the 20th and 21st centuries, including Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, Helen Prejean, Elizabeth Johnson, and Pope Francis, just to name a few. The original draft of this paper was a bit more academic and theological and dispassionate, but this paper takes a much more personal bent, foregoing the likes of Levinas and Derrida. And today we're just going with Farmer and relying on personal narrative and experience. 
In this presentation, I will attempt to do the following. First, I will offer a working definition of accompaniment and explain why I understand accompaniment as a spiritual practice. I will share a short story of accompaniment and a close with a personal reflection on what I have learned about accompaniment from Paul Farmer. To be clear, I only speak for myself and from my own experience and others who knew Paul well can and will surely explain what of some, some of what I try to say today more comprehensively. And I think we all know that generations to come will read, study and interpret the life of Paul Farmer in its many dimensions. So what is accompaniment? What does it mean to accompany the lonely other? The notion of accompaniment has a somewhat fluid definition and a wide variety of applications. Paul described accompaniment in this way. Accompaniment is an elastic term. It has a basic everyday meaning. To accompany someone is to go somewhere with him or her, to break bread together, to be present on a journey with a beginning and an end. There's an element of mystery of openness, of trust and accompaniment. The companion, the accompanitor says, I'll go with you and support you on your journey wherever it leads. I'll share your fate for a while. The primary location of accompaniment is always in the human and personal dimension and focuses on real people in concrete circumstances and in specific historical and cultural realities. This is not to say that Paul did not push the concept of accompaniment further. He applied the concept of accompaniment to our policy work, which he laid out quite brilliantly in a commencement address entitled Accompaniment as Policy at the Kennedy School of Government in 2012. In this speech, Paul linked a preferential option for the poor and accompaniment especially its theological underpinnings and describes the ways in which accompaniment and a preferential option for the poor can positively impact government and enlighten policy. The talk was very well received um, and Paul believed that even in institutional settings or when contractual arrangements are present, long-term relationships and open-ended listening and walking with the other, rather than taking the lead, in other words, accompaniment should prevail. And well, let's just say a theological discussion on the option for the poor and accompaniment was a first at the Kennedy School of Government. I believe, and I think Paul would agree, that in his experience, a helpful way to interpret and understand accompaniment is to see it as a spiritual practice. For many of the attributes of accompaniment are inherently spiritual in nature. In my experience and observation, accompaniment links the interior spiritual experience to an outward expression in human relationships. And when practiced wisely and consistently, offers access to the transcendent and provides a clear guide for living a moral life that is rich with meaning. In every human person, there is a hunger for goodness, for human connection, for transcendence. 
Only the most foolish do not acknowledge that a mysterious dimension beyond Newman, human knowing exists and that occasional glimpses or encounters with the mysterious give our lives meaning that is available in no other way. While supernatural experiences do occur, and I strongly recommend you do not go looking for them, most often the mysterious dimension of life is revealed in the ordinary and primarily through human relationships. The process by which humans encounter mystery is often referred to as spirituality. Jesuit theologian Roger Haight claims that spirituality is not a special marginalized activity reserved for a few, but uh, instead resides deep down in human behavior. And every thinking person has some spirituality operative in their life. He explains that spirituality refers to the style and pattern of a person or a community's life. And the spirituality we embrace centers our life and measures our character. Hate claims that our identity, our actions, and the distinct values and goals we hold dear find their expression in our personal spiritualities. My use of the term spirituality, while not tied to a particular belief system or religious tradition, is not a secular spirituality. It presumes a thoughtful interpretation of existence, what the existence of one God who is viewed as the creative source of human life in the world. My definition proposes a spirituality that is first inclusive and takes the demands of pluralism seriously, and secondly, resonates with the world's greatest religious traditions, all of which in a variety of manners, bow before an unseen reality greater than ourselves and in turn orient us toward the good. The brand of spirituality I am proposing avoids any form of religious extremism and the hijacking of religion for political purposes. I note the often made distinction in popular discourse between religion versus spirituality, used to parse and point out the difference between those who participate in an organized religious tradition and those who reject membership in a tradition, but express a belief in something beyond themselves and a desire to seek a transcendent experience. Suffice to say, I have encountered many people in both camps who clearly understand or clearly fail to understand that the true test of being religious or spiritual is seen in actions that lead to a life of love, communion, and service to others. By their very nature, spiritual practices are meant to discipline the practitioner, to call him or her to ongoing conversion of the heart, which opens him or her to a larger reality than the narrowness of self-involvement. Act, active participation and faithfulness to a genuine spiritual practice develops the interior life, calling us inward to reflect and then pushing us outward to serve other people. An accompanying spirituality is rooted in an understanding of a God that loves and gives priority to the poor and oppressed and demands the same of us. Or as Nathan Mitchell puts it, the preferential option for the poor is an ethical practice that is in fact not optional. 
For in fact, no one gets into heaven without a letter of recommendation from the poor. We have all accompanied others and have been accompanied ourselves. In good times and bad, on a daily basis, we accompany our family, our friends, our colleagues, our students, and those with whom we come in contact in a variety of settings. This presence and support is part of family life and friendship, and this kind of accompaniment is critical to our own human and spiritual development. Indeed, human flourishing is difficult, if not impossible, without accompaniment. However, at this juncture, I make two key points. While we are all in need of accompaniment, the poor are greater, are in need of, are great, are greater, or excuse me, the poor are in need of greater accompaniment. Those who are committed to a preferential option for the poor will be called at some time or another to push the boundaries beyond our own social networks and to move beyond our own cultural reality into very different social and economic spheres. Accompanying the lonely other is most often not about heroic activities, but rather about laying down our lives in little pieces of sacrificial love and service on a daily basis. Accompaniment does not happen by accident. The decision to be an accompanateur in its fullest sense is a highly intentional act that takes practice and requires dedication and vigilance. The spiritual practice of accompaniment understands and cultivates accompaniment as a way of life, grounded in a particular worldview that is oriented toward the common good and rejects the postmodern notions of radical autonomy and individualism. Instead, accompanateurs believe they have a responsibility to contribute to the building up of communities where mercy, compassion, empathy, and concrete assistance to others is given the highest priority. The spiritual practice of accompaniment is a school of virtue rooted in the moral ethical model as opposed to a psychological or therapeutic model that both calls us to greater generosity and unselfish acts of love and permits us the opportunity to observe and be influenced by the generosity and selflessness of others. The spiritual practice of accompaniment demands a bias for those on the margins of society and cares deeply about justice for those who are poor oppressed and socially devalued. Liberation theology describes this bias for people at the margins as a preferential option for the poor. Accompanators who are people, are people that in the words of Paul Farmer, are willing to make a common cause with the losers, even if it means giving up being on the winning team. I would like now to share a short story of accompaniment. In many ways, it's a dramatic story, but at the same time, it's not at all an unusual story. In fact, it's quite commonplace. Several years ago on a Saturday afternoon in late February, I received an email from Father Jim Keenan, SJ. Jim is a friend of Paul's and mine and one of the leading moral theologians of our time. It was a short note that would lead to a long story of accompaniment. Dear Jenny, I hope this finds you well. 
I have a student whose brother is in the Congo and has been diagnosed with colon cancer. He's had surgery and it's been caught in an early stage, but they want to put him on a chemo protocol and he doesn't have enough money to pay for it. Any ideas? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I wonder if there's some dispensary in the area to make chemo drugs available at a lower price. Best Jim. There's a line in the PIH mission statement that reads, when our patients are ill and have no access to care, our team of health professionals, scholars, and activists will do whatever it takes to make them well. I didn't have to check with anybody to see if we should try to help. For when you have been trained by Paul Farmer, you know that everyone is potentially our patient, including now this fine Congolese man married with four young children who does not have the funds for the chemotherapy that will save his life. Well, not an unusual situation, this man's plight is a difficult one as it, there is very little cancer care in the developing world for the poor. I am not a clinician, nor do I know anyone in the Congo. However, all I had to do was send a quick email to the PIH network to ask for suggestions. In the next 24 hours, John Weigel, one of Paul's former research assistants, just happened to be in the Congo and was getting in touch with all of the medical NGOs in the area to see if any of them might have the funds or medication for our patient. Another PIH or Claire Wagner, who was a student at Harvard Medical School, had worked in Rwanda for several years and was getting in touch with one of the doctors at our cancer center in Butaro to see about the possibility of delivering his chemo there. I soon received an email from the esteemed Dr. Paul Park, a Harvard PIH doctor who's the director of non-communicable diseases in Rwanda, asking for more information on the patient's status and offering his support a few days later, I had the first of many calls with Father Jim's student, who we will call Rose, the sister of our patient in the Congo. Rose is a lovely young woman, serious and sincere. She seemed a little overwhelmed by the demands of her studies, the pressure created by the gravity of the situation, and the responsibilities of her role in trying to find a solution. After our introductory call, Rose writes, Thank you so much for your sense of solidarity and support. Here is some medical information in French. Please let me know what you think. I've also attached the medication they ask him to buy or get. According to the doctor, he may need to follow this treatment for six months. My family problem is the difficulty to access this medication because they are so very expensive. I just don't know what to do. In the interest of privacy, I will not share any clinical information about our patient's medical situation, although these matters loom large as the situation unfolded. Not surprisingly, things did not go smoothly. Truth be told, they rarely do. Accompaniment almost always requires the virtues of fortitude and patience. Doing whatever it takes means dealing with dead ends, disappointments, and disasters, and truthfully, sometimes failures, no matter how hard you try. The first plan of action suggested by Dr. Park was to bring the patient to our clinic in Rwanda, where we could provide free state-of-the-art medical care. While it would be free, one would still need to find 
airfares and housing. And in the end, not surprisingly, the patient didn't want to leave his family for six months, and he hoped he would still be able to continue to work at least a little during his chemo to help with the family finances. By this point, a little over a month had gone by. Rose's family, desperately worried about their brother's treatment, borrowed enough money from family and friends for the first chemotherapy treatment. Rose writes, thank you for your concern. My family was able to collect enough money for the first treatment, but we don't know what we're going to do after that. I hope you will understand more in reading this document that I attached for Dr. Park. The next day, I got a very upsetting email from Dr. Park. He had taken everyone else off the email chain and was writing to tell me that he had reviewed the information Rose has sent about her brother's proposed chemo protocol. He was very concerned. It seems that the medicine they were planning to use is known to be toxic and not the most effective treatment given the current research. He strongly suggested we re replace this drug with another drug. So now we had two problems, neither with a ready solution. First, we needed to find the funds so the patient could continue his chemo regime. And secondly, we needed to find and pay for the new drug. I tried to gently tell Rose that there were some concerns about the drugs that were being used and that we would like to replace it before his next round. I didn't want to overly alarm her in case we were unable to meet the challenge of finding, paying for, and transporting the meds to the Congo in time. But she and her family did need to know that the treatment her brother receiving was not optimal. In the meantime, Dr. Park was verifying his thoughts on the medicine used for the treatment with the top cancer specialist at Harvard. This is how accompaniment works. The process grows quickly and exponentially, for now we had the best specialists in the world accompanying our patient. I then asked Rose for the information about the cost of the treatment. She quickly wrote me back. Please see the cost of the treatment for a full course. Um, through collecting money between all members of the family and every person we know, we have been able to pay for one session. The total cost for all the treatment is $4,490. Please let me know what you think. Whatever you think, I will still be grateful for the opportunity for sharing this matter with you. Just by trying to help can make me feel at peace. I can tell you that reading her email definitely did not make me feel at peace. I was absolutely overwhelmed that this man's life hung in balance because he did not have $5,000 for chemotherapy. Just a few hours earlier, a friend was telling me about a charity auction that she had just attended for her child's elementary school and how somebody had bought an Hermes Birkin bag for $8,000. Her point in telling me was not to comment on how expensive the bag was, but to say it went for such a good price as it retails for much more. Now, I like high-end handbags just as much as the next person, but this was one of those moments when you are forced to face the fact that something is terribly wrong with the way things are. How is it that a person on one side of the earth has enough money to pay for an $8,000 handbag and a person on the other side of the world doesn't have $5,000 for chemotherapy to save his life? 
I kept talking to Paul about it, both my upset at the injustice, to which of course he was no stranger, and more importantly, how to get the funds to pay for his chemo. These funds are what I like to call offline donations, no tax deduction, no donor recognition plaque, no thank you note from an NGO, no metrics or outcome assessments, just the quiet satisfaction of pushing back against a system that's stacked against the poor and maybe saving one family untold suffering that could have been avoided. Paul and I cobbled the money together and got it to Rose in cash so she could wire it to her brother through Western Union, the only way to send money to that part of the world. And we found the medication. We convinced the doctors in the Congo that a change was desirable. And in time, the new meds were procured and delivered. Hundreds and hundreds of emails, dozens of phone calls and face-to-face -face meetings in three languages as people all over the world, doctors, administrators, theologians, medical students, nuns, priests, volunteers, and generous donors came together to do whatever they could to accompany one man that they will probably never meet on this earth. Paul sometimes liked to call accompaniment dispensing the medicine of mercy. I was blessed to know Paul, first as a spiritual directee and in time as a dear friend and colleague, although he would never let me say I worked for him. I had to say I worked with him. And indeed, this means I studied accompaniment at the foot of the master through observation in many different circumstances, through extended dialogue and conversation, and by deep familiarity with his writings. I'm grateful for the printed word and advanced te telecommunications. And this will give anyone who so desires the chance to study at the feet of Paul Farmer. So to all I suggest, read the books he wrote, read the books written about him, and I'm sure there will be many more forthcoming and listen carefully to him speak in the hundreds and hundreds of available videos on YouTube and the PIH and Harvard websites. So what can I say I learned about accompaniment from Paul Palmer? What does it take to be a good accompanateur? I have put this list together quickly in the last few days. I wish I'd had another week or another month or maybe the rest of my life to better organize my thinking. I know for sure I've forgotten something important and that my writing, both the prose and the clarity are lacking, especially since I wasn't able to send them to my poet daughter for editing. And for this, I beg your understanding. I'm a theologian and thus my perspective is theological and spiritual. Paul makes it clear that while there is no one size fits all approach to accompaniment, there are some guiding principles. And I hope these suggestions will well reflect those principles. For sure, others who know Paul well, be they clinicians, anthropologists, friends, gardeners, advocates, patients, or students, will see this list in a different light and will add much to it. So here are the principles, the guiding principles that, of what I learned from, about accompaniment from Paul Farmer. Principle one, good accompanateurs figure out what their vocation is 
and then carefully develop a vision to live out their vocation in service to others. Note, you may have more than one vocation in you. I certainly have, and we know Paul had numerous vocations. I got an email from Paul while he was in Sierra Leone during the Ebola epidemic. I can't remember the exact content and I didn't have time to search for it, but part of the email had a long list of all of the kind of people that he thought were needed by Partners in Health to respond to this terrible crisis. The list was long, nurses, doctors, drivers, administrators, translators, priests, funeral home directors, social workers, technology experts, facility managers, housekeepers, cooks, and pharmacists, and there were probably more. He made the point to me that all of these jobs are of equal value. And for things to go well, each person should see their job, however grand or humble, as important to the effort. At the time, I remember thinking of another Paul's description in 1 Corinthians, where he explains the unity in the body of Christ, each member doing its share. So find your vocation, envision how you can live it out, get the education, training, and credentials, or whatever else you need, and then give it all you have. For as Paul said once, quoting Martin Luther King, anyone can be great because anyone can serve. Principle two, good accompanators are co committed to what we call the ministry of showing up, even when physical presence is not possible there are many ways to show up and communicate support, especially given modern technology. Paul was in daily communication through the phone, the text, and his loved WhatsApp with so many people around the world on a frequent or even daily basis. And these were no generic messages. They were personal and often part of an ongoing dialogue. I sometimes wonder how he got anything else done. Here's an excerpt from one of the last messages I got from Paul. He sent me a message of a little girl named Josie Ann in the cancer unit of the Butara Hospital. He was sitting on a bed with her and she was smiling. He told me that earlier that day he was upset because she had to go to Kigali as they didn't yet have a scanner in the hospital in Butara. He said, you remember our strategic priorities from years ago, cancer care and the scanner? Well, we got the hard part done, but we've dithered on the scanner. He loved the word dither. Six hours later, he wrote back, she made it back. I noted she was smiling in the picture and I could tell that she really liked him. He responded, I think it's mutual. She told me she's been watching me see another young person with cancer every day and wishing that you would see me too. And then as he often did, he asked me to pray for her. Principle three, pay attention to the way you go through the world and be on guard to make sure your thinking, attitudes and behaviors don't do more harm than good. Begin by practicing what Paul calls cultural humility realizing we can never fully understand a culture different than our own. Believing we do fully understand another's reality, especially in settings of great impoverishment for which we have no frame of reference can lead to make a, a making erroneous assumptions. 
which can be arrogant and patronizing of those we are attempting to accompany. Next, do not be quick or confident with claims of causality. By this, Paul means making judgments and drawing conclusions about the reasons for behaviors and outcomes in complex situations with too much certainty and self-confidence. Most of the time, after more in-depth inquiry and after listening and observing a situation with careful attention, we are often forced to acknowledge that we cannot lay claim to what we thought we knew for certain. And in situations where there is an imbalance of power and resources, be on guard to avoid patronizing attitudes and behaviors, remembering that accompaniment is not a one-way street where the haves affect the have-nots. The rich are generous to the poor, the learned teach the ignorant, the powerful bend to the powerless, and the more gifted evangelize the less endowed. Principle four, Good accompanators are known for having what Paul calls a hermeneutic of generosity, often referred to in PIH speak as, as an H of G. Truthfully, really trying to have an H of G can be a little counterintuitive because human nature being what it is, often tends to mean we want mercy for ourselves and the club of justice for everyone else. But not Paul. He was hard on himself and easy on everyone else. He saw the best in everyone and was aware that people become what you tell them they are. Forgive everybody everything. When Paul's feelings would be hurt, which they often were because he was sensitive, he never held a grudge and he would let even the most egregious actions slide. I for one would be furious and rolling my eyes. It helps if one can learn to listen and learn with the ears of the heart. Try to glean what is both said and left unsaid. Paul always urged understanding rather than condemning. Good accompanators like Paul spent much more time thinking about other people than they spent thinking about themselves. They cultivated a sincere interest in the narrative of others and the narrative of the lives of other people. Principle five, good accompanators don't try to go it alone. It's just too harsh and too lonely. Find others who share your vision and build a life filled with love and laughter and make common cause together. Form long-term partnerships based on equality and respect, allowing the poor and oppressed to be your teachers and guides for they will give you the opportunity, in the words of Don Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to experience an incomparable value, to see from below, from the perspective of the outcast, the powerless, and the oppressed. Paul developed the ability to take the long view, putting hardships in perspective, accepting setbacks, disappointments, and failures as part of the cycle of accompaniment. And this gave him the freedom to shoot high, take risks, and not be afraid to fail. Principle six, good accompanators acknowledge their own need for accompaniment and take the time to rest and reflect, both in silence and with trusted partners, and, <clears throat> and make time for rest and renewal. It is necessary to nurture your interior life. 
Believe in the words of Dostoevsky that beauty will save the world. I know Paul believed this. He loved music, art, flowers, trees, and plants. He loved to read good and sometimes bad books. He watched endless movies with his family. And then he would go for a long walk as he, as he meditated on poetry. Paul spent many, many happy hours in the garden, his own. I think he planted about 500 red bromeliads during the pandemic. And of course, creating gardens and planting trees and hospitals he helped to build around the world. Believing that the poor were entitled to the same kind of beautiful landscaping one would find in the hospitals we go to. In fact, I know he was gardening on the last day of his life. Principle seven, good accompanateurs make a preferential option for the poor and the corporal works of and spiritual works of mercy, the organizing principles of their lives. They're committed to do at least one of the following at any given time, feed the hungry, care for the sick, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, give drink to the thirsty, instruct the ignorant, counsel the afflicted, pray for the living and the dead, and all good accompanateurs use their success as this, as the measure for their lives. And finally, principle eight, to be a good accompanateur, you must accept the reality that at some time or another, your heart will be broken out of love. Paul had a way of making everything seem special. Every meal, every trip, every conversation. He was a hope giver extraordinaire. Or as I used to like to tell him, he was an eschatologist. This is not to imply that Paul was always in a good mood. He felt deeply and profoundly and was especially touched by the needless suffering of others. He was in Rwanda for the last month of his life doing what he loved best teaching and seeing patients. The comments and emails that he sent during the last weeks of his life were filled with pictures of his patients with requests for prayers and update on their conditions. He had lost a patient just a few days ago, a young man named Boston. He had sent me pictures of him a few days early to ask for prayers and told me there was a sliver of hope. He was so sad when he wrote and told me we lost him at midnight. He sent me a picture of him with his father and a forlorn image of the four men car carrying Faustin's casket. I told him his accompaniment of Faustin and his family was a sign of God's love and mercy. I was supposed to have been on this trip with Paul, but we put it off because of the Omicron situation. I was concerned about him because I know these deaths always break his heart. When I said I wished I was there with him and asked if he was okay, his response, but you are here because you know. I am okay deep down and I love this work so much. As Paul's spiritual director, I had access to his interior life, the details of which of course are always held in confidence. However, once a person has gone to God, sometimes their spiritual director reveals details that no longer need to be held in strict confidence. As you may recall, Mother Teresa's spirit director shared with the world the dark night of her soul and how she shouldered on in spite of, a, a, of an arid spiritual life. 
This was certainly not Paul's experience. He found God in all things, and his interior life was bathed mostly in sunlight and consolation, although, like all of us, he had his questions and struggles. I am not at the point of sharing deeply personal information. Suffice to say that Paul loved God with his whole heart and his faith gave his meaning, his great life, um, gave, his me gave his life great meaning. He had a particular devotion to the Eucharist, and he often wanted to discuss what it meant to be nourished by the body and blood of the risen Lord. Last year, he was awarded the prestigious million-dollar Burguin Prize, which he promptly gave away as he quipped, I was a millionaire for a week. He was humble about it and kind of in awe that he was in the same category as some of the previous recipients. I will never forget that when he received the prize, he called and asked if there was any way I could bring him the Eucharist before he went to receive it. I wrote a short word service and one of my Dominican brothers brought me the Eucharist. And then Paul and I sat outside by his koi pond and as his beloved fish darted in and out of the greenery in the pond that he had built by hand, we prayed together and with tears streaming down his face, we shared the bread of life and the cup of salvation. That was Paul, humble and grateful and moved to tears by what God has done for us in Christ. There have been many tears in recent days, tears of sadness, tears of gratitude for him and for his life and for his beautiful days amongst us. For his accompaniment of us and for his accompaniment of God's beloved poor, we now have the way shown to us by Paul and we give praise and thanks to God in Christ through the spirit. Eternal rest grant unto Paul, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May his souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Well, Dr. Block, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm incredibly moved by that and by the witness that you've just shared. And uh, it means a lot. I feel, like, uh, I feel like silence is perhaps the only response to what you just said. Thank you. We do have a few minutes for people to engage in conversation. And as we usually do, what I'd ask you to do is to go to your Zoom screen, uh, to the bottom of your Zoom screen and, and raise your hand, uh, use the hand raise function. And uh, I will, under reactions, and I will call on you and we'll ask you to unmute and to directly ask your question to Dr. Block. Um, I'll start out while people are, are framing their questions. Uh, Dr. Block, uh, first of all, it's been so moving to get to meet you and to hear from you about your relationship with, uh, with Paul Farmer. And we, we had the great pleasure to, to gather with you last, last night on the steps of Duke Chapel, uh, where Paul Farmer himself as a Duke undergraduate had um, uh, marked the assassination of St. Oscar Romero and counted that as a kind of conversion uh, I, I understood that as, as, a, as a time of conversion for him. And I wonder if you could, could speak a bit about the importance of conversion in Paul Farmer's life and in your life. And what kind of invitation does, does, that, um, does his witness give to, give to us now? 
we, you know, conversion is not a one-time experience. Um, and, um, you know, throughout Paul's life, there are many, many times, and I think for ourselves as well, there's always so many opportunities, you know, the, the classical definition of, you know, conversion is a fundamental change of heart and to move us in a new direction. And, um, you know, part of Paul's spirituality was his openness to conversion and his humility, and really his great humility and being realizing he, um, you know, he needed to be converted as we all do. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions from people in the, in the audience? I'm going to invite you to, uh, great. And I see a question from Teresa Lysol. Teresa, uh, if you can unmute and share your screen and it's good to see you. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Yeah. For some reason, it's <clears throat> not. It says unable to start video because the host has stopped it. Oh well, Ben, that's okay. Thank you, Doctor Block, so much for this beautiful and substantive and um, uh, presentation that moves us forward. Um, I've been a student of uh, Farmer's work for a long time as a theologian and a bioethicist. Um, but I had never heard anyone speak of the role of the Eucharist in his life and his work. Mm -hmm. So that particularly for me today um, is just a, an extraordinary um, insight. I, I'd love to hear more about, so it, it seems that that was sort of subterranean um, in some of his uh, messaging. I'd love to hear more about um, how he came to appreciate, because I know his journey in Catholicism was, you know, like many, um, uh, growing up in the United States, it's not always the most attractive um, faith tradition, um, but you know, rediscovering it through um, uh, liberation theology. Uh, I, I would be just interested in hearing a little bit more about the practice and, and how that sustained uh, the work and the community and partners in health if it did. So that's just sort of a open-ended comment and question. Well, I mean, you know, there's a few things. One thing is, you know, he loved nuns and priests. Um, he loved to be around them. Um, actually, last night I gave a short eulogy at the at the memorial service, and I was just mentioning some of the priests. And there's a number of sisters as well who just had such a such a big influence on him personally. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, one of them being you know Father Gustavo, um, Guti you know Gutierrez, who you know he whom he did a book with. Actually, in the last few months, he's he, he telling me he was dreaming a lot about Father Gustavo. He was worried about him. You know, he's ninety six. You know, and I'm so sadly we had to call Father Gustavo and you know tell him. Um, and so. Like everybody, it, it was interesting because, you know, uh, he, for many, many years, he never wanted to speak publicly about his faith because he didn't want it to, he didn't want people to co-opt it and use it and say, well, Paul Farmer is this or Paul Farmer is that. And when I went to him and said, you know, I'd like to write this book, I'd like to write a book for the series, The People of God. And, you know, and in some ways I did it with some intentionality because I wanted him to be located among 
you know, the, the noted Catholics of this time. And he was, he said, oh no, I mean, really? I don't, I go, well, don't worry, you'll be at the bottom because, you know, you're going to be like with people with only, who only have a first name, you know, like Francis. Um, and so I said, well, let's make a deal. Um, I'll submit the proposal and if it gets accepted, we'll do it. And if it doesn't get accepted, it means it's not supposed to be done. And so we agreed. And of course they jumped right on it. So, you know, as soon as I sent it in, they called the next day. And then we agreed that he wouldn't see the book till it was finished and he wouldn't read it or see it. And so I was a little nervous. I didn't know if he'd like it. He never saw a draft. He didn't see anything. So I kind of got nervous. It took a long, long time to write it because I have to just try to do it while I was working. And then I got a little, so the, the book was done and it came out and I didn't tell him. And so he saw somebody in the airport reading it. Um, so he goes over, he goes, can I just see that book for a minute? And the person looks up and she goes, you haven't, are you like Paul Farmer? And he goes, well, yeah. And he goes, you haven't seen the book. And so he's like calling me, he's in Africa. And he goes, is there something you forgot to tell me? Um, and so that was really the first time he was with that book, he was willing to let, um, you know, to speak more, to let somebody else speak publicly about his faith and his particular devotion to the corporal works of mercy and to the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Teresa. And I would just recommend uh, this book by Dr. Block, uh, named Paul Farmer, Servant to the Poor, which a student, actually, uh, one of our students, Brendan Johnson, gave to me last year as a gift. And it was. Yeah. And I learned a lot about Dr. Farmer from reading it and was so uh, blessed by it. And I'd recommend it. Uh, it's really a, kind of a, a very accessible theological biography of, of his life. So thank you. Thank you for that. Other other questions from uh, from participants. Actually, it was funny because you know the book. You know, it's for the people in the pews. It's for you know the yeah. gen, the general reader. And so Paul, if he finally did get to read it, and he goes, "You can sometimes explain what I mean, you know, more clearly than I can," because you know he was so intellectual, and his you know some of these concepts were, um, you know, pretty you know, complex and intellectual. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Other questions from the group? I wonder, oh, our, we maybe have time for, for one more question after this, but I, I wonder, uh, Dr. Block, if you could comment on something that we talked about in a previous conversation, which is Paul Farmer never accumulated much, if at all, in terms of material wealth for himself. Uh, and you mentioned he gave away the million dollars from the Perguin Prize, and yet he was uh, surrounded by um, not only wealthy people, but ultra wealthy people, uh, uh, globally known ultra wealthy people who, would, who were uh, friends and supporters. So can you just speak a little bit about his approach to wealth and the acquisition of wealth? And, and what, would, what would be the kind of call for those who find themselves either uh, wealthy in the way that many middle-class Americans are wealthy relative to um, those across the globe, and also those that are that are blessed with um, with exceptional wealth. What would be the kind of spiritual call to us and to those who are who are who are who are who are, who are wealthy? Well, I mean, frankly, it, it was it was it was it's really very unusual. Um, actually, when he got the million dollars. 
there were a lot of people who had a lot of ideas about what he should do with it. I kept saying, I don't know, he got the million dollars, so maybe he can figure it out himself. I um, didn't see anyone giving you a million dollars. Um, but it did occur to me, I, I mentioned this to you because so many of the people that he associates with have enormous financial security. And he really, I don't think it ever occurred to him for a minute to keep the money. Um, and and it, it, a lot of times people who get these big prizes, they give them away. Um, like the, the recipient of the Brigham Prize the year before had been Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, uh, but, and they give it to charity, but she had financial security. She did not, you know, I mean, which wasn't, which was also very generous of her. I'm not saying that, you know, there wasn't a wonderful thing to do that, but he, it never, I don't think it ever occurred to him that it might, um, it might be a good thing to, to, um, accumulate that. I told, I, I think was telling somebody when he was considering joining the Obama administration, we went to, um, you know, Washington to meet with the lawyers at the State Department, you know, and I'm like, Paul, everybody else has brought like a corporate lawyer and you brought a theologian. I mean, we might not even be on the right start anyway. And then they keep saying that he's going to have to put all of his holdings in a blind trust. And he kept saying, well, what's a holding? Um, and I kept saying that people, it's not going to be a problem because he doesn't have any holdings. He certainly was probably the only person in the history of the United States, you know, Senate that was that that didn't have any holdings who would have been considered for a job like that it was really i mean it, it was it's it's almost hard to believe in some ways you know the detachment from um you know from from the acquisition to you know wealth um and and you know you know it, it some ways it was really like hard to believe um uh, you know, that somebody could be, I told you last night, you know, he just, he just, and, and whenever he got any money, he just gave it away. So it really wouldn't have mattered how much, how much money he like passed through because it was going right out. I was telling, the, I was yeah. telling you the joke is, you know, when I first, you know, he never had a winter coat. And so at first I was trying to look to buy him a nice coat. And then like after the eighth coat that he gave away, I was like trying to find the like cheapest coat because, you know, you know, you saw him in two weeks, he would have given it to somebody on the street. And, and he did absolutely with any, any kind of recognition or fanfare. It was just what he was like. Mm -hmm. This has been so helpful and enlightening. Dr. Block, uh, thank you for, thank you first for being here in the midst of your own grief, uh, for sharing yourself and your own work. Uh, thank you for sharing with us uh, more about the life of Paul Farmer. Uh, thank you for being here with us for this hour. And uh, thanks to all of you who are with us. Uh, we would invite you to join us for our next DNC seminar in uh, two weeks with Dr. Gilbert Mylander. And uh, are so grateful to all of you for being here and um, go in peace. Thank you. Thank you.